Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Well, welcome to Broadway Bullet Volume Three Twenty Five for November twenty six, two thousand nine. Uh, as for your uh, Thanksgiving holiday enjoyment, I'm cutting this right before I get ready for a. Couple needed days off. Uh, hopefully, I can recuperate a little bit. We got a lot of great stuff in the program for you. Clea Blackhurst talks about her one woman show where she uh, emulates song and tells stories about the uh, <laughs> incomparable Ethel Merman in a show called Everything the Traffic Will Allow. We've also got many people involved with the brand new festival. Ah, another festival, you say? Well, you haven't seen one like this. It's Fight Fest, focusing on eight shows that are extensive in fight choreography. We've also got the show She Like Girls here, as well as Company XIV's uh, dance theater performance of the Apple Trilogy, three shows they're running in rep. And Dan Fortune is here with a lush and lively segment to share another rare track with you. So we got a lot on the plate. I also want to let you know, um, if you've been a fan of Broadway Abridged, as we've put up the live segments in the past, all six episodes that we've aired are now uh, combined into one CD uh, that you can get on iTunes. Just search Broadway Abridged, or we have a link to it on the front page of uh broadwaybullet.com or at broadwayabridged.com. In it, we've got all of them. We've got Wicked, we've got West Side Story, A Chorus Line, Les Mis, Spring Awakening, and The Little Mermaid, all for your listening enjoyment. And hey, why not give it as a gift? You can gift things through iTunes. Also, um, the link hasn't gone up. There's supposed to be a physical CD available in uh, Amazon.com very shortly. Um, If you can't search and find it, as soon as we uh, know that it's there, we will put a link to that on the front page of Broadway Bullet as well. But it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can show your support for both Broadway Abridged and Broadway Bullet by uh, picking up a copy for yourself or a friend. Or, hey, why not both? Um, so that's Broadway Abridged Live. Check it out at iTunes and other digital retailers. All right, well, let's get jumping with this week's program. Cabaret Corner. Clea Blackhurst is just open for an open run, but hurry and get in now. Open run doesn't mean forever. <laughs> uh, everything in the traffic will allow where she takes on the uh, little-known actress Ethel Merman. Oh, boy. And, <laughs> and she's here in the studio to uh, talk with us a little bit about the show and uh, Ethel Merman's life. How are you doing, Clea? I'm doing great. How are you today? Uh, been crazy. <laughs> it is a little crazy outside. There's something... That Thanksgiving air it's coming It's been crazy along. for the past couple of months for me. <laughs> oh, well, that's all right. That's all right. Halloween's tricky, too. It's okay. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about uh, everything the traffic will allow. Well, this is my, I guess, sort of valentine. i got to say, I can see Ethel Merman right now, so this you, you is can clearly see, a good choice. Th- thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
the, the thing I love to like really say right out of the gate is I don't imitate Ethel Merman. I'm sort of an I'm a natural belter. As a kid, I grew up. That's like. You know, in every there's somebody who has to play Miss Sarah in Guys and Dolls, and somebody who has to play Adelaide, and I am the perpetual Adelaide. Do you know what I mean? The second banana, the second lead, and um, so if you're that kind of voice, that kind of personality, growing up, Ethel Merman was just it for me. So I eventually sort of put together this Valentine to her, where I just tell stories about her, sing songs with my band that are associated with her, and really give her a nice tip of the hat. She's 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 the greatest personality of Broadway's golden age, arguably. Um, <clears throat> but there aren't that many. I I, I just it's a great it's a great uh, body of work to celebrate, and that's what I kind of set out to do. So. So what are some of these favorite stories, maybe these un- unheard tidbits that people might not know about Ethel Merman? Well, I mean, <clears throat> the trick with Ethel Merman, especially doing the show in New York City, and we, we're we're in a theater right now that's on the corner of 50th and Broadway. I mean, we're in the heart of the theater district. Um, the trick is how to tell stories about her that the theater maven who knows everything will sort of nod their head like she's got that right, she's got that right, and that you can also appeal to somebody who has no idea what I'm talking about. And the older I get, you know, people not only don't always know, well, they don't know who Ethel Merman is, but they don't know who George Gershwin is. I mean, this this popular culture stuff, it, it's really changed. Broadway used to be like right at the crossroads of popular culture. All the songs that from a, were from a Broadway show were on the hit parade. Not so much that anymore. So what are some of the stories? I mean, there are really famous ones about her, like like the opening night of Girl Crazy in October of 1930, where she sang I Got Rhythm, and she held a C over the entire chorus for like the however many bars that is. And um, just absolutely stopped the show, literally became overnight a sensation, was never not Ethel Merman again, you know, could be big box office draw from that moment. There's those, the kind of moments which we open with. Um, there are great stories. I don't know. There's so many. It's a, it's hard. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I have a whole show about them. You'll have to come and hear them. I mean, it's a very... Um, uh, it's an amazing Broadway career. Thirteen Broadway shows she did, all of them hits. Uh, some of them, you know, and in the 30s, a hit was something that ran at least, you know, like they would run for six months, seven months yeah, before she did. Shows back then didn't run for 10 years. And do you know why? I just, I just was reading, I read the goofiest things, but um, air conditioning played a big part in that. Broadway just closed down for the summer. So, um, that's why there were so many people off working at the Cape Playhouse or, you know, Agunquit, Maine, that whole straw hat circuit. People would leave their Broadway shows, go up and do something in places where it was cool, and then they'd come back in the fall. And a lot of times these shows just wouldn't reopen because they weren't really the investment or the big deal they are now. And people would just move on to their next show. And that was, that was the case with Ethel Merman through a lot of the 1930s. So, um, Oh, I don't. I'm just a. I'm just a geek. I'm a merman geek. What can I say? I'm not sure. You know, I'm sure there are people out there. Who, I know there are people out there who love her as much as I do, because they 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 come and see my show and they, 
tell me things and they correct things. I don't get much wrong, but we do get into like uh, vigorous debates about who's right, you know. <laughs> so, so if you think you're a Merman expert, because your your audience is savvy and in the know, and you haven't seen my show, come and argue with me. That's my challenge. Come and come and find out where I'm wrong and see if, see if you can get me um to apologize. Well, before we continue here, uh, uh, you've recorded a couple of the songs from the show, I understand. Yeah. Uh, so would you like to play a song from the show here? Yeah, I would love you to play something from the show. Uh, um, I think how – about, how about Blow Gabriel Blow, which is from Any, Anything Goes, 1936, big hit for um, – 1934, 1936, 1934. <laughs> <laughs> I think 36 – here we go. Here comes the first do, do, argument. Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a giant hit. First time she works with Cole Porter, uh, who said he loved writing songs for Ethel Merman more than anyone else in the world. So here's a little pass. Uh, here's a little ditty he gave her to sort of put her personality across the footlights. All right, let's take a listen. Inspiration. What if the Merman character in Anything Goes was a nightclub singer who used to be an evangelist? Yeah, that's it. An evangelist who gives up singing in the choir so that she can sing in a nightclub. And so Reno Sweeney, for the Merman persona, was born. By the way, Ethel Merman is remembered as a singer of subtlety and nuance, yes. But rarely, to my knowledge, is she remembered for her scat singing. In my research, I unearthed a rare passet scat for Merman. I hope when it comes up in a few minutes here, you'll enjoy hearing it as much as I enjoyed finding it. Well, that's Gabriel, Gabriel playing, Gabriel, Gabriel saying, Will you be ready to go when I blow my horn? But now I'm willing to trim my lamp So blow, Gabriel, blow I always love Gabriel, low. Mighty low, Gabriel, low. But now that I have seen the light I'm good by day and I'm good by night So blow, Gabriel, blow Once I was headed for hell Once I was headed for hell I heard you blowing on your horn once more So I said, Satan, farewell And now I'm all ready to fly Yes, to fly higher and higher and higher Cause I've been through the brimstone And I've gone through the fire And I've purged my soul and my heart too So climb up the mountaintop and start to blow Gabriel, blow
you're doing Ethel Merman, one of the, you know, noted for her big voice. Yeah. And so I, I think this begs bringing up the discussion. Do you use a mic? Oh, I'm so glad you bring that up because it's really a very – I do use a mic, and I'll tell you why. There's a thir- there's sort of a 21st century uh, aesthetic – our ears are used to hearing things a certain way now. So if you're trying to appeal to a younger audience – not appeal to a younger audience, but just, just reach that part of us that's kind of current. I like to use a microphone so that I can really come way down on some of the ballads and really uh, – and. You know, I'm from the generation where I need something to do with my hands anyway, so I'd rather have a microphone. But um, <clears throat> no, but but seriously, it's like Merman sang the way she did because she came of age and was a phenomenon for being heard in the back row of the orchestra and the balcony without a microphone in an age when there were no microphones. So I'll get people who come and argue with me now. They say, she never used a microphone. She never, ever used a microphone. Well, in the 1970s when she's singing at the Hollywood Bowl, trust me, she used a microphone. She was not a freak of nature who could just be her. <laughs> but, um, but, the, but the quality is still there, you know. Um, I like to use it just to give me more choices in being Clea Blackhurst and not always having to belt it. The belt comes from – I sang the original I Got Rhythm charts with an orchestra uh, not too long ago. There's a reason she sang like she sang, and that was to get over – all that brass coming out of the orchestra pit. You have to place your voice kind of up here and like ping it out. Um, and if you want – to sing everything that way the whole time, you would steadfastly choose to not use a microphone. If you want to give it some other variation, I think I chose to use one. And it is, you know, people do ask me about it sometimes. Why do you do that? And that's why. I just think it gives me a little more um, ability to sort of negotiate what I want you to hear, what, what I want you to hear from me. Because I am not Ethel Merman. And... I don't even do a particularly good Ethel Merman imitation, quite frankly. I do the same imitation we all do when we sing the national anthem at a baseball <laughs> game. We've all got that Merman Im- imitation in us. But, um, you know, I just like to do my own thing uh, in paying tribute and referencing her. So, You know, it's it's. I used to do, you know, a lot of community theater and stuff and no mics and stuff. And, you know, these were in like 350 exactly. houses. I do have a really hard time truly imagining no mics in you know yeah. in you know one of these one two thousand seat houses right I, I know mean, it's it's I just did a production of um, Call Me Madam in San Francisco in a four hundred seat house with uh, piano and another and little tiny instrumentation uh, we had no microphones and I have never worked so hard in my entire life or ended up appreciating Ethel Merman so much in my entire life because you've got to work really hard to get it out there just to be heard before you get to interpretation or anything else. So that's what I mean. That's Our ears are not used to that now. No matter how much we think we want to value that, we're not used to that sound. That makes an audience work, which is great. And it would have been fantastic to be back there when these houses that are old now were new. The acoustics <clears throat> blended with the voices. I, I mean, it must have been a very different sound than we have today. But, you know, as you bring that up, I was, there is, you know, some people bemoan technology. But what you're just saying, it has to be a good thing for actors now that they can get more subtle 
with their performances and a good thing for the the audience the thing that they can go to the quieter moments on actual quieter songs right and, right and the audience doesn't have to go uh, honey what what did he happened? just say <laughs> well it, it does make for a different it's just a different it, it really is a different world but you're you're right I mean I think for the purists who like the idea of the natural I still like that very much as in a performer I like it uh, but I'm not sure. It requires a certain kind of delivery. And if we want a little bit more subtlety in our acting, we probably wouldn't take away the microphones. But boy, do I sometimes miss the the, the voice, you know, <laughs> not being augmented or who's really in control here of what we hear. It's become a very important job, the sound man, in terms of what we end up hearing and being, you know, familiar with from they want everything to sound like the cast album now. Yeah. So as long as we get that sound, uh, I guess everybody's happy or cranky, depending on which opinion you carry. <laughs> uh, but, well, before we continue, uh, why don't we play another song here from your recording? People sometimes ask me, what's your favorite Merman song? Because, you know, I'm a little freaky about it. And over the years, I think I've chosen this one. Uh, as my favorite because almost nobody associates it with Ethel Merman, but it's hers fair and square. She introduced it in 1931 in the George White scandals on Broadway. And um, it's one of those songs from the Depression era that the lyrics are actually so simple that they transcend time. They're, they're really valid and important and touching for all of us just because you can sort of pack all the meaning into this very simple message. So, All right, let's take a listen. Why don't they stop someday, address themselves this way? Why are we here? Where are we going? It's time that we found out. We're not here to stay. We're on a short serious. Life's too mysterious. You work, you save, and you worry so, but you can't take your dough when you go, go, go. So keep repeating, it's the berries. The strongest oak must fall. The sweet things in life to you were just loaned. So how can you lose what you've never owned? Oh, life is just a bowl of cherries, so live and laugh at it all. So keep repeating, it's the berries, strongest oak. So how can you lose what you've never owned? Oh, let me reiterate that life is just a bowl of cherries. So live and laugh. So live and laugh at it all. 
All right, here. So before we wrap up this interview, I'm looking for what's the most obscure, like, Ethel Merman detail that you, you know, story slash thing that you can pull out of the top of your head. Wow, the most obscure. My goodness, that's a that's a mighty tall order. <laughs> it depends. Nothing on, about her was obscure. Yeah. <laughs> she, Nothing. There wasn't. There wasn't a lot that uh, kind of wasn't in the public domain with Ethel Merman. She was a pretty simple. Um, I don't know. She was pretty simple and straightforward. I think, you know, the diehards are going to know everything. But I do love, for my generation, that she was married to Ernest Borgnine for 32 days in 1964. I think that's like a, a fabulous, like, little factoid. Like, what happened? And neither of them ever talked about it. He doesn't really give it a very good answer in his book recently. And she never really – in fact – We were drunk and went to Vegas. Well, I mean, they, 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 they had this whirlwind romance – they got married. They stayed married for a couple of weeks, kept it going for like a little bit extra so that people didn't make fun of them. And uh, I don't know. I like that. What else? There's going to be something. The minute I walk out of this door, it's gonna, I'm going to think the most obscure. I'm going to call you up and get you to like tell it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you have – have you ever heard it? What's the most – what's the uh, most I'm famous not... thing? No. When, you, when I say Ethel Merman, what pops into your head? Like – the voice, you know, yeah. you know, Gypsy, yeah. you know, the, I, the, the, there's a quote that is like at the tip of my tongue that at yeah. the moment I can't quite pull up, but it, it's something like the shows are, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that's Sunset Boulevard. The show's oh, that, got big. The, that's, the, <laughs> but I think that's Sunset Boulevard. But it fits Boulevard. for her, too. <laughs> no, it's, I, I like when people, you know, uh, my, my generation, people my age, and we had, uh, this will date me immediately, but like on the love boat, she played Gopher's mother in the movie. Airplane. She plays that soldier who shell shocked, who thinks he's Ethel Merman in the hospital. She was kind of around as a punchline when I was a kid. Um, and the thing that I really love that people just forget or they never knew is that you go back over the course of the 40 years of her Broadway career, and she was this absolutely sexy, dynamic, huge star, like Julia Roberts famous at a time when the Broadway stage really sort of was just as as big and valid a part of the the entertainment constellation. And people forget that. They just don't. They think of the late Merman who's singing, you know, to Fozzie on the Muppet show and sort of bah, doing her big like bah, that, that scoop she got into yeah. when she got old. But there's a whole other um, side to her that's like really able to be pulled out, looked at uh, and just respected beyond belief. I mean, I I. I certainly try. I've I've tried to give her a very good, um, you know, respectful study, but it's very entertaining. <laughs> Already, I bored myself. You see, I had to get right into like, but it's very very jazzy and fun. It's great. Uh, well, now this is running at the Snapple Theater Center. Right. On fiftieth and fiftieth and Broadway. It's been my dream for a long time to have this show be somewhere in New York. It, we're there once a week. Like that's my that's my job is on Saturdays, five o'clock. It's a great show time. At first you think, is it a great show time? It's fabulous. People love it. Uh and it's just there uh you know, for as long as people will come. Uh, it's finally in a, it's a little off Broadway theater on Broadway, but that idea that it's a it's a tribute to Merman, uh and you can always find it right in the middle of Manhattan. So yeah, we're there. You know, come come see it. I swear, people, um, 
It's a great time. We, my, my, I have a great time with my audiences. I think the feeling's mutual, I hope, anyway. <laughs> and the website, your website is cleablackhurst.com. That's K-L-E-A-B-L-A-C-K-H-U-R-S-T dot com. That's it. Uh, you have, like, all the information there as well. We should have all that information there. Yep. We should. Yep. Well, we should. I haven't looked at it today. Somebody's in charge of that, but heads are going to roll if anybody goes there and does it. No, this information should definitely be there to help you find. We also have a couple of uh, little holiday performances on the Friday. So go to the website and see if anything works for you. This fits in with your dinner plans, with going to another show later at night, with coming from your matinee and seeing this. Whatever. You can make it work. I really hope um, people will come check us out. All right. Well, Clea, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure and has been a bit online. more about, uh, you know, like, like, like I said, I'm, I'm of the age where I feel like I know her, but I don't know that many individual yeah. stories. It's like I'm the theater guy. And Ethel Merman. It's just Ethel right. Merman. Right, right. Uh, but This show will catch you up. You will be so <laughs> caught up, you will never need another primer ever. So. <laughs> All right. Well, again, it's CleaBlackhurst.com, and thanks for stopping by and telling us about everything the traffic will allow. Thanks so much. On the boards. For those of you craving a little bit of action, there's a new festival in New York, Fight Fest, which uh, claims to be, and I imagine very probably is, the first festival to feature all fight choreography. Correct? <laughs> uh, that's our belief, yeah. And, and, and somebody's still filling out the sheet, so I just spaced out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you introduce yourself for a week. My name is Jeff Lewanzik. I'm an associate director of the Brick Theater and artistic director of Piper McKenzie Productions. And you're putting on Fight Fest. We've got uh, three of the other people involved with the show sitting here in the studio waiting to talk about the show. But tell us a little bit about, uh, about Fight Fest and, and your inspiration behind it. Well, you know, we recognized that there was a niche that was going unfilled in New York theater, and that was basically a month straight of people kicking each other's asses on stage. And so we really thought that, you know, based on the popularity and, quite frankly, fun of shows like those produced by uh, Timothy Haskell or the Vampire Cowboys, that, you know, the time was ripe to sort of take the concept of stage combat and really crack it open and present a... Uh, a situation in which we could explore it from all different angles, different fight styles, different ways of integrating fighting with narrative and so on and so forth. So we we put out a, a, an APB um, and we got interest from Art Meets Commerce, uh, which is uh, uh, Tim Haskell's company. And uh, Abby Marcus and Queen Wen of the Vampire Cowboys helped us to curate and Art Meets Commerce is helping us with some of the marketing as well. And so we were able to really, you know, take this sort of super group of uh, uh, of fight-oriented uh, theater and, you know, put out a call for, for applications. And we got some really, really great, fascinating shows. And really, like, everyone's is definitely sort of delving into a different aspect of, of fighting. We have, uh, you know, straight-up martial arts shows. We have uh, knockabout sitcoms. There's capoeira. There's, you know, crazy costumes, uh, marching through history, you know, all sorts of stuff across the board, really. It's really exciting. And how many injuries so far? Uh, so far, none. <laughs> so far, our uh, our little board that says there have been blank number of injuries since, you know, 2009 is is, is thankfully still at zero. So uh, what are the dates of the festival and where can people go to get more the information? The festival is, dear God, and I apologize, I'm not remembering the dates right now. 
Somebody in this room here knows? December 1st Speak through... Up. 1st to the 20th. To the 20th. December 1st through 20th, 2009. <laughs> that, that, that's definitely information. I, I just know it's December at this point. But uh, December 1st through 20th, we're uh, starting on December 1st with a uh, free cabaret that is uh, showcasing some of the... some selections from some of the shows, which is whenever we do those for one of our Brick Theater Festivals is always a real hoot. And I think this one is really going to... It's a hoot? Surpass the, it's a hoot. hoot. And, and it's a holler. <laughs> it's, it's it's a little bit of both, uh, but we always have a good time, and I really think this one is is gonna gonna top them all because you know you're not only coming and and enjoying yourself and seeing selections from the shows, you're seeing some great you know fight choreography and some some hints of some really amazing things. And so, okay, December 1st through 20th, uh, where do they go for more information? They go to BrickTheater.com. That okay. is theater with an E-R. Uh, and we'll have our full uh, schedule up there with uh, links to all the individual websites of all the shows. You can buy tickets straight from there. And we got three other uh, people involved in the production waiting to shuffle into the booth and talk about what's going on. But I also understand you're specifically involved in one show. So give yep. us a real quick, real quick rundown of your specific show. All right. Uh, Craven Monkey and the Mountain of Fury is a Darwinian martial arts fairy tale in which monkeys and monsters beat the crap out of each other. Uh, it's basically an evolutionary parable uh, in which Mother Nature uh, sets herself up against a monkey and tries to keep him from becoming human and all sorts of terrible, terrible things ensue. So we have crazy costumes, and we have we have capoeira and some various other fight styles that we had to create in order to accommodate strange beasts. So it's it should be original. <laughs> All right. Well, Jeff uh, Lewonk. Lewanzik. Lewanzik. Those na- those names get me every time. <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not not for the weak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got three more people that are going to come in the booth and talk about their shows from the festival. And thanks so much. And best of luck with the festival. Everybody, Great. check it out. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right. So we've shuffled people in the booth, and we've now got Alyssa Simon, who's acting in one of the shows. Kate Wilkinson, uh, who is a uh, co-producer and uh, counter. Co-writer. It looks counter, like counter. Sure. You, you, I can co- count things. <laughs> I was like, what does a counter do? And we've also got Jacob Gregolia Rosenbaum, who's a, a director and fight choreographer for one of the shows. Yeah. How are you guys doing? Great. Phenomenal. Thank you you. want to really quick introduce yourself, say the name of your show, so people can connect the name with the voice? Sure. Uh, I'm Jacob Gregolia Rosenbaum. I'm directing The Buccaneer, uh, and that's the story. <laughs> All right. Okay, hi. Uh, my name is Alyssa Simon, and I'm an actor in Deck the Hallmans, which is by Ten Directions. And I'm Kate Wilkinson, and I'm the co-writer and co-producer of Power Burn 3. And you count things. And I like to count things. <laughs> All right, I- I'm going to lead off with something completely different here. Is it completely sexist to me to be surprised that there is two women here for the, the, the fight <laughs> festival interview? It, it is. It nice. is. And we're going to fight you later. About it. <laughs> so, so tell us, what, what, what is it about the, the fight choreography world and the, everything that attracts you to it? And, and for some reason, I, I mean, I am kind of surprised that, that in this uh, in walk, you know, two lovely ladies. Thanks. Nothing against you, yeah, Jake. Um, I was about to say, I'm, I'm going to try and digest that over here. <laughs> while, while the other two answer that, I'm going to s- stew in my frustration. Um, well, th- oh. this is Alyssa. Uh, this is my first um, production where I've done fight choreography. Mm. 
And there's a, a fellow named Kui uh, Nguyen of Vampire Cowboys, and he really choreographs according to people's abilities. Didn't he also do Fight Girl Battle World? Yes, or, he did. Yes, that's what I was reading him. Right. So for me, he was like, okay, Alyssa, bonk, <laughs> bonk, just uh, very simple. And other people are doing hitch kicks and really complicated stuff. Yeah. Well, um, my show has seven girls, and um, they're all incredibly fierce. Um, also, I have the only fight director in the whole festival who is a woman, Carrie oh, Brewer, yeah. mm-hmm. who is incredibly kick-ass. And um, I think my show is going to prove that, uh, that you know, we can kick just as much ass as the guys. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to say also for our uh, specific production, Adam Swiderski is doing the choreography. He's yes. great. Yes. We, uh, and, and Jacob, the the, 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 the token the, the, the male yeah, the token. fight choreography for the first time ever. Um, yeah, we uh, we have I've uh, po- poached one of uh, Quee's usual actresses for uh, my show's uh, Bonnie Sherman, who yeah. was uh, uh, starred in uh, both. Battle World and uh, the Soul Samurai show from uh, a year ago, and she's super spectacular. Uh, we have a, a totally gender balanced cast of, of fight superheroes, and uh, it should be pretty spectacular. So, so I, I'm assuming that when you're working on shows that have a lot of fight choreography, there's got to be some interesting stories happening in the rehearsal process. Anybody have anything interesting to share? I think that I mean there's there, there's a combination of uh, what sort of always already came up, which is the, every time you come to a fight show, it has to be directly aimed at the abilities of the people who are in it. Yeah. Uh, but that also gives you an opportunity for in like a festival like this. And I'm not sure if these guys found the same thing that you wind up finding the actors who have not only the abilities you thought they had, but also all kinds of other crazy abilities, like, you know, running up people's bodies and doing flips oh, and all right, this yeah, other. Absolutely, absolutely. Total it's like, I think the, one of the first questions you ask is, well, what can you do? And then if you find out, like, you know, what, how, how I guess, how game the actors you're working with are on you. Uh, okay, what's the there. strangest thing you've seen that somebody can do? <laughs> I'd be scared. <laughs> so what can you do? Well, uh, I can... Exactly. Uh, I, I, the, the question is, the, the strangest thing that you can do that you can then subsequently actually apply on stage in a manner that, you know, your actor is safe and alive after the two-week run. Um, and, you know, we have everything from, like, uh, you know, like breakdancing-esque moves to uh, doing a sword fight in a tango routine at the same time, I suppose, would be the, you know, it's it's not... I think the, the stuff we kept isn't as crazy as the stuff. That it's, yeah. how, does, how does that come up? I can tango and sword fight. <laughs> well, it's, it's, there, there was the, like the dance skills came up, and like I am the child of a dance instructor, and I was like, excellent. Did it? Did it? You know? Did it transfer? And uh, you know, then you find out it certainly did. And then you have uh, you know these two fighters who are doing this very you know intense sword fight against one another, and. Uh, you know, they've already got, like, twirls and spins with the sword fight, and then you suddenly realize that a dip would be really good right mm. there. Uh, and so, you know, it, it came, like, a few days into the choreography when I realized that uh, I hadn't specifically chosen tango and that we now needed to go in the direction of tango as opposed to samba or swing. So, Kate, hmm. uh, writing the show, was this something you had already written and submitted, or was, was, did you write this for the guidelines of the festival when it, you heard they were doing this? It was absolutely written for the festival. Um, so this opened up new opportunities. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, um, 
Uh, my co-writer, Alana McNair, and I had um, worked in the field of fight choreography before. Um, a couple of years ago, we co-wrote um, the show Fatal Attraction and Greek Tragedy, which had a lot of fight choreography in it. Um, so we knew Tim Haskell, who's one of the curators of the festival, and he said that, you know, we should write something for this, and we did. And um, now that we've written it, I think that it could actually be a great standalone piece outside the festival, but certainly it's the perfect place to showcase it. So were there any anything you found tricky about trying to write a show with uh, with the stipulation <laughs> that this is right. for a... Well, it had to be 25% fight choreography. <laughs> that was what was in the application. How do you do 25%? Because I would imagine <laughs> I the have... direction for fight choreography... <laughs> You know, either takes up way more time or less time than dialogue. I don't know. How do you... Right. Well, we basically... It was the first time we wrote something specifically to the guidelines of being in a fight festival. And we basically just wrote it sort of like a musical. But mm -hmm. rather than people bursting into song, they burst into fights. So, you know, it's a, it's a pure yeah. fight-sicle. <laughs> In terms of the script, I think there's definitely, uh, in fight shows, you can't just leave it like a normal play will have, they fight. Right. Uh, like, in order yeah. to, I think, get a sense of, if you have 25%, or, or even, like, you know, just a general sense of how long the show might be, um, most of the, like, fight shows that I've worked on actually have a little bit of the, like, fight plot description as part of the text. And so, as what was said, very much more like a musical where, like, the book and the music are sort of sitting there together on the page. Right. Uh, and then it's a question of, as again, as with a musical or any other sort of multimedia uh, theater piece, you just have to get the fight director as opposed to the music director or both, and uh, then you have a show. <laughs> and then magic happens. <laughs> and Allison, you just mentioned... Alyssa. Or, oh, sorry, Alyssa. That's okay. okay. <laughs> it was, I, I should have gotten closer to the page. Uh, you, as you mentioned, you're, you're working with Key. Um, uh, well, Adam Sudersky is the choreographer okay. for our show, but he's... Quee's uh, choreographed a lot of other yeah. shows in the fest. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you said you were working with Quee. So uh, I got confused. I'm sorry. I'm an actor in two shows. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Quee uh, is. You can talk uh, about both of them. I am here to talk about Deck the Hallman's. <laughs> but I'm also in Ninja Cherry Orchard. Okay. So, well, on that level, I, I have to say, what is it like uh, doing two shows? Is, is it a little uh, bit. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's really busy. <laughs> Um, I'm doing nothing for Thanksgiving. Do you ever find yourself throwing an attack move from the other show in the, in the wrong show? And <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, thanks. <laughs> that was the sound of me knocking on wood. Oh, really? <laughs> All right, so just to kind of wrap this up, each of you give your, like, 30-second elevator pitch on the particular show you're in and the website they can go to on your particular show. Okay. Uh, Alyssa Simon with Deck the Hallman's. And uh, if going home ever makes you miserable, then you can come and see Deck the Hallmans, which is a wonderful, perfect family who is determined not to make Christmas what it was last year. And you can go to 10directions.net. Nice. Uh, the Buccaneer uh, or BuccaneerThePlay.com uh, can give you more information on The Buccaneer, which is... Um, it is the, the uh, product of the illicit love affair between uh, Spanish telenovelas and 1930s Hollywood Golden Age Errol Flynn cinema, I guess. It's a little bit of like Bruce Lee and crazy Stephen Chow and injected into the body of Vinegar Montoya. 
right. Um, this is Kate Wilkinson with um, Power Burn 3, and my show follows two women who have to compete for the same promotion at a fitness company, and uh, corporate infighting sort of spills out of the um, conference room and onto the mean streets, and, uh, and fights ensue. Um, naturally. Naturally. And uh, so uh, you can go on the Brick Theater website, or you can become a fan of us on Facebook. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. Again, it's December 1st through uh, 20th, correct? Yeah, Is that what we all determined in the the round robin for? And um, do you know, is there any sort of like a festival pass or discount if people go catch more than one show in this? Um, Does nobody know? That I know of. Oh, no there, it's possible. <laughs> go to the Brick Theater. The, com. the <laughs> producer the was theater. just in here, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk to him. <laughs> All right, so uh, Alyssa's oh, son. I'm sorry, oh, can sorry. I also say one more thing? Uh, our show is improv. Oh, <laughs> it's long form improv, so you can also make suggestions if you come to the show and we're a different show every night. Okay, I'd say. Shudder to think of what suggestions might happen at a fight. <laughs> Improv. Well, not the fight. The fight's are <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> Can you stick your hand? In? Okay. Anyway, uh, Alyssa Simon, uh, Kate Wilkinson, and Jacob Gregolia Rosenbaum. Thank you so much for stopping by, and best of luck with Fight Fest. Thanks thank for you. Thanks. On the boards. Inspired by a real-life crime in 2002 in Newark, New Jersey, She Like Girls is the new production being presented by Working Man's Clothes. And we have uh, lead actress Karen Eilbacher, as well as the director Jared Culverhouse, here with us to talk about She Like Girls and uh, what this kind of means and and the journey that it's been through over the past two to three years in development, right? Yeah, it's been it's been a while. <laughs> All right. So, well, first thing is, tell us a little bit, uh, what is She Like Girls? Uh, she Like Girls is a show about two girls who fall in love in a homophobic environment in the inner city. And it's about this girl's journey, Kia, Kia Clark, that's whom I'm playing, and her journey through everyday life, going to school, having interactions with her best friend Andre, her mom, um, the other kids at school, and her love interest, Marisol Feliciano. And just coming to terms with who she's realizing she's becoming, um, what her sexual interests are, especially. Um, and. And she sees how this slowly unravels and how she gets to interact soon with Marisol, but how the world around her starts to not accept it. And um, so things reach a high point and then slowly drop and a tragic ending Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's sort of... Uh, sort of a play about a lot of different things like the basic story is a love story between two young girls but it's also about how a community sort of handles uh, the situation and um, definitely how lives are touched when tragedy happens that kind of thing it's a lot about there are a lot of um, extra characters that aren't the two lead actresses which mm-hmm. is Karen and another Karen actually but um, the characters outside of that you really get to see and get a sense of community and sort of how it's affected by this and how they view uh, you know, homosexuality in this 
specific community. Now, what was the actual event that kind of inspired the, the playwright to write the show? It was the murder of Sakia Gunn. She was stabbed to death in 2002 mm-hmm. at a bus stop in New Jersey. Um, and uh, the playwright, Chisa, grew up in the same neighborhood. So when she heard about the event, she was like, wait, I've been at that bus stop before. That's like in my neighborhood. And she was teaching school in L.A. at the time, I think. Yeah. And she uh, kind of heard about it. And it had been like six months since it had happened. And she'd seen no media coverage on it or anything. And uh, there was a study done, if you look at it, that there were like 200 some odd different articles when Matthew Shepard thing happened. And there were like 30 for this. So it's definitely... You know, a difference in how it's viewed in what community. So, yeah. you know, this kind of touches on that. And she felt that it was a story that needed to be told. So that's kind of where she started to workshop it. Yeah, the, the media loves to jump on, like, rural areas and pointing out, yeah. you know, the homophobia <laughs> in rural. But it right. seems like the media likes to gloss over yeah. the fact that this exists in other cities and all cities. Right. And, and I, would I oftentimes say, say, like, how many other kids got kidnapped on the same day as John Benet Ramsey in this country? Mm. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, really, like, we heard about that story for like about two years because she was excessively wealthy and like wore makeup and weird dresses but <laughs> I was kind of like my god there has to have been like 50 I don't even know the number but nationwide you would think that there were a lot of kidnappings in that time that should have gotten that same sort of attention Yeah. so you're right yeah and they, and they like gloss over the fact oh the cities are like you know meccas of debauchery anyway you know yeah. and and so of course it's all accepted but and then i would often argue from kind of what i've seen that in some of the inner city or the poor communities mm-hmm. that i don't think it's probably very similar to being in a rural rural place for a lack of acceptance and and for peer pressure and and, and what, what's going on so yeah. <laughs> right, definitely. It's certainly one of the last, I think, like bastions of like communal homophobia in some instances. So, uh, so how did the playwright and you as a director, you as an actress, balance the, you know, kind of inherent political content and statement with the, the story and the telling and the themes and, and the theatrical, you know, entertainment, so to speak, of the, of the show? Um, do you want to? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think the basic, when we first got the play as Working Man's Closed the Company, we got the play and it had been through some development at the Lark Play Development Center. And um, we took a look at it because um, our person at the time who was looking at all the plays named Becca Brunstetter, a playwright herself in the sort of like indie world, had seen it and really liked it. So she gave us the show and we read it. And the thing that struck me about it was that it was a tragic event and there was that tragedy you know, naturally occurring at the ending, which is based on a true story. But it was such a nice story, though, also. You know what I mean? You really got to see a young girl, like, coming into her own, and there's a great relationship with a mother and a daughter. And there were just a lot of really human elements to the play. And I feel like, you know, sort of the trick for, I think, any company is... If you go about things strictly telling the human story, all the other sort of elements and things will take care of themselves as long as you're, you know, taking care of that sort of basic thing. So as a director, I certainly attacked it to tell the best story possible. And the themes are sort of the themes that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's a regular girl. I mean, yeah. it's. It's the person that you go to school with. It's, you know, your old childhood friend. It's whomever. Um, when you go and see this play, you'll see that. And and then 
the ending is, you know, emphasized so much more. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was also one of my favorite things about the script is, um, and I think I maybe said this in another interview, but like I'm from a welfare single mom home. And I feel like every time I see that depicted, it's always this awful place where nothing good ever happens. <laughs> and it's like a loveless home. And, she, you know, the mom is really mean and all this like stupid stuff. And that's just, you know, that's a stupid stereotype. That's not necessarily true. You know, there are a lot of really poor, happy people. And one of my favorite things about this play is like, even though it's an impoverished neighborhood, for the most part, everyone's, you know, I think it's important to show that just because you don't have money doesn't mean that you're inherently unhappy or angry all the time or all these different things. Like you're struggling with the same things, like, you know, going to school. I like someone that maybe doesn't like me back, you know, whatever, whatever the simple sort of human things that we can all kind of key in on. Mm -hmm. Now, how long have you been involved with the the show, Karen? I've been involved for the past two years. Um, I'm going into my last semester at NYU, and I started when I was just ending my first semester in sophomore year. So it's been a it's been a really incredible journey, <laughs> to say the least, actually. Have there been any frustrations along the way or working with developing a show for so long? And- um, there are only good frustrations. I know that's, you know, but um, I mean, the character of Kia is very challenging and uh, that's fun. You know, it's it's great for me. And I mean, being on a new work that Chisa wrote um, throughout my college career now. You know, I don't know if we've gotten the playwright's full name over the course of the interview. Chisa Hutchinson, yes. <laughs> a wonderful playwright and Incredible. a wonderful person. Extremely, really good girl, really nice person. Really. Wonderful playwright. Yeah, and and being on the show for the past two years with this new work, it's like I get two educations, you know. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, well, from some press notes that were sent, I got the I got the idea that the audition process might have been slightly different than normal for this show. Um, uh, slightly. Uh, Karen, uh, yeah, I'm not just saying this because she's sitting beside me. Is so good that if for some reason she wasn't able to do the show, like I wouldn't have produced it. To be dead, I mean, just straight up. Like, she's worked so hard on it, it would be an absolute (laughs) tragedy not to have her play the part that she's been instrumental in developing for two years now. Um, So there were a lot of portions of the show. There There are, I think, three people who did a previous production before with Working Mans that are still in the show. Karen's the only person that's done all four. But there were some sort of other parts that we wanted to continue to try to challenge ourselves to find a more unique or an interesting type for. And I think we have a really, really stellar cast. I'm really very, very, very pleased with the cast that we have. Yeah. Yeah, but the audition process wasn't like, you know, come in, read this. I mean, it was more, um, you know, we kind of, anytime you work with a new play, you know, you want the playwright in the room for sure. So, you know, there was, of course, like we had to coordinate the schedules. Chisa was able to be there and see every single person that we cast audition, which I think is important. Mm -hmm. And I like really to have a unified front. So, yeah, Yeah, we have a good cast. It's going to be, I'm I'm really excited. Really, really Good rehearsal just last (laughs) night. I'm pumped. You know, it's good stuff. Definitely. And now the show's running December 3rd to the 29th, mm-hmm. uh, and people can find out more information at workingmansclothes.com, I take it? Yeah, definitely, yeah, and it's also listed on Theater Mania, of course, if you're 
for the, for the ticket sales. If, mm-hmm. if you're so inclined to come and see our show. Yes, indeed. Which we hope you do come. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, well, I definitely wish you the best of luck. And uh, Karen Eilbacher and Jared Culverhouse, I thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Very nice. Thanks. Okay. On the boards. Company XIV has been on the program before. They're a neo-baroque, opulent dance performance company. Uh, and I don't know if that also is neo-baroque, as every <laughs> artist is in New York. Uh, but they are taking uh, the Judgment of Paris, which they were talking about, I believe, last year on our show. And you can find out more in searching our archives. And they're expanding it into a trilogy in rep. Uh, three shows called the Apple Trilogy, playing from December 3rd through January 7th. 17th. Uh, find out more at www.companyxiv.com. And we've got Joya Marchese and uh, Laura Careless. Is that right? Yep, it's right. Careless. It's, uh, that's an interesting name. <laughs> oh, um, boy. It's better now I'm not in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, both performers in the show is here to talk about it. So uh, tell us a little bit about the Apple Trilogy, your, your elevator pitch, so to speak. Well, it's three ruminations on temptation, essentially. In Ooh, very... too many syllables. <laughs> <laughs> ruminations on temptations, opulent. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to have to dig out a thesaurus on this show. <laughs> well, that's the pitch, really. <laughs> well, there's the Judgment of Paris, which is a story about three goddesses in a contest for. A the golden the apple. golden apple, which is a symbol of beauty. They're asking Prince Paris to choose between them, between their beauty and between what they have to offer. And Aphrodite tempts him to give her the apple by offering the most beautiful woman in the world. And, of course, the other goddesses can't compete with that. <laughs> so that's the temptation there. And we see how that degenerates into something very sad. Right, Aphrodite? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have um, Le Serpent Rouge, which is our take on the Adam and Eve story. Um, not what you'll remember from church. <laughs> um, well, well, there's a legend that uh, Adam had a wife before Eve that he wasn't particularly happy with. But uh, in, in our take on it, he decides that he might want her back a little bit later which isn't very nice for Eve. <laughs> so that's the temptation there. We take Adam and Eve through um, the seven deadly sins, and there's lots of um, very sexy dancing. <laughs> and um, also... And tragic. And moments. tragic, yeah. Uh, we see how man and woman kind of get to where they are now in the way they relate and... Um, the the struggle that's always there, the descent from temptation, yeah, from paradise to a sort of purgatory, which is the way we present day. <laughs> <laughs> and then our third story is the Snow Grimm's White. fairy tale version of Snow White, mm-hmm. which is people should know is different from the Disney version. It is very yes. different than the but Disney, but very family friendly. Yes, we promise. <laughs> <laughs> It's um, we've got lots of magical effects, and there's a uh, baroque trio that play the magic mirror, singers, singers, Singers. Mm -hmm. and um, shadow puppets, and just snow, snow, 
show and dancing and, and floats for the queen that come mm, in when amazing sets. I mean, we were there in tech the last couple of days, just <laughs> like little. I was like Taking a little back child. To childhood. Yes, like, this is the kind of show I've wanted to be in since I was about two years old. Yeah. So um, pink tutus. <laughs> judgment has tutu. I have a tutu in Judgment of Paris. Yeah. Hera, Hera really tries very hard for that apple. It's a really amazing group of shows. Like, and I, I think as an audience member, it would be really fun to see all three and just get this um, kind of view of the work and all of it in its entirety. I think yeah. is really fun and also moving. I think there's a lot of tie-ins between the characters. Um, yeah, For example, the the woman who plays Helen also plays Lilith in the Apple trilogy, and also in the, in the Snow White, Serpent. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In, in Serpent Rouge, and at the end of the Judgment of Paris, we see Helen as an older woman, very bitter woman for all that's happened to her. Her lover has been killed. Her husband has disowned her almost killed her, actually. <laughs> and in our version, Aphrodite sends her to be a prostitute because that's all that's left for her. Uh, so she becomes sort of a shell of her, her former self. Does she use Craigslist? <laughs> Maybe in the modern version. Lonely Having goddess in search of Yeah. <laughs> but my point was, <laughs> at the end, she... Uh, actually is dressed in the same costume that she uses for Lilith later and she circles the stage in a way that she does as Lilith so you sort of, you know, if you were to see the shows you might make that connection that she's the uh, overlap the overlap, the she becomes as Lilith, she is a soulless woman that's Adam's problem with her mm -hmm. <laughs> so she sort of gets there mm -hmm. by the end of Judgment of Paris and there's that connection, there's a couple of things like that I think that are through lines now, this is being done true rep with most of the cast doing all three shows, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. What is that like, prepping three shows uh, at once? It, <laughs> it's amazingly um, difficult, but it's also so exciting as a performer yes. to be able to do three shows in rep, to work with a company that we work together on a regular basis, and we just have such an amazing rapport and yeah. we trust each other and we know how we work together and um, it's just so rare now to be able to be a part of something like this that's on ongoing and um, and now to be able to do, to do these three shows to bring them back all these characters that you know I personally don't feel ready to let go of yet so I'm excited to have a chance to do them again. I think something that's wonderful about the company and which definitely drew it drew me to it at the beginning and continues to draw me to the work is that each of us makes such a integral contribution to what goes up on stage. It's not just slotting into a place that's been vacated by somebody else. It's really your place and yeah. the the roles are made around you so then to go back over all this work that we've created over the last couple of years and sort of see your own evolution <laughs> along yeah. with the characters yeah. it's incredibly satisfying if exhausting yeah <laughs> now you're really kind of cross-discipline with this blending you know like singing theater dance you know um. which is kind of where the name company xiv comes from because it's an homage to louis the 14th and um, he had created this style of 
performance that was he's in like a 360 um, kind of performance where you were getting a multimedia blend um, and that's Austin McCormick the founder of company XIV has this broke background but he also has all this inter- interest in pop culture and art history and film and he kind of brings it all together with um, dance theater music singing these amazing designers that he brings in Zane Philstrom is a set designer and um Olivera Gayek is an amazing costume designer that's designed all three shows. Gina and Gina Schur is the lighting designer. And then he just collects these people and <laughs> just has a snack for, like, bringing people together that all share his vision. Mm-hmm. But now, can add to it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, do you guys get a lot of support from the traditional dance audiences in New York? We're, it's interesting because we're kind of finding our audience is I'm finding more in the theater world, although I think the dance world is getting interested, is getting interested more and more. But I think um, it's I, I find it's that an odd than, schism, you know, that, the, you know, it's like absolutely. theater people like dance involved in theater and dance audiences like. In general, kind of strike me as this purist. They yes. want, you know, straight dance. That's, and if there's anything else that confuses them, it's, it's true. <laughs> it really, we run into that. This isn't concert dance. So where does it fit? It doesn't fit in the traditional dance venues. But I think that it could, and I think that eventually um, we'll bridge that gap. And there have been other dance theater companies that have found. A path, you know. But I think it is a fairly either new or unexplored yes. field, and I'm excited to see where we can Especially take that blend. The it, way that Austin does it is something that absolutely I've never seen before. No. I think something that is particular to the performance that he chooses for the company is that we're not either dancers or actors, but we're asked to really be both yes. at the same time not even just switching between the two but to dance and act at yeah. the same time sometimes <laughs> even to speak I know isn't it crazy that it's so shocking two I mean it's become, so, it's become so natural to me now I, I can't imagine there's a couple of things in Snow White which are really mostly pure dance for me personally and it's really hard to mm. do now because I've just to got go back so, to that yeah I've got so used to having such a clear dramatic punch to everything <laughs> it's really hard to just dance for fun <laughs> so so uh, now where is this playing at um this is at our space in carroll gardens brooklyn which is at 303 bond street it's right off the f train in carroll gardens mm-hmm. all right and again it plays from uh, december 3rd through january 17th and uh What's the schedule kind of approximately like Is all the, with the three shows in rep? How do they kind of rotate? They, they alternate. Judgment of Paris is Thursday and Saturday at 8. Serpent Rouge is Friday and Sunday at 8. And then Snow White is Saturday and Sunday at 3. And uh, there's, a, there's actually a discount if you buy tickets to all three shows. You save like $15 altogether. Right. So, so it's worth it if you're interested in seeing all three, and that's um, at smartticks.com. And uh, you can also find out more information at the company's website, www.companyxiv.com. And Joya Marchese and Lauren Careless, I thank you so much for stopping down. Thanks, and, uh, Michael. Sounds thank interesting, you, and best of luck with the run in rep over the holidays. Thank you.
Hi, this is Dan Fortune with the next Broadway Bullet Lush and Lively segment. I'm a producer and publicist and DJ, and I do a monthly night at the Time Out in New York Lounge on the final Friday of the month, and it's called Lush and Lively, and it has lots of fun, different uh, jazz versions and disco versions of show tunes and pop songs and Beatles and things you don't hear anywhere else. So thanks for joining me. The great song we have for you this week is called Feelin' Good, which has been recorded by many people, most famously by Nina Simone, the jazz pop soul singer. It also went on to be recorded by the Pussycat Dolls and George Michael. Adam Lambert did it on American Idol. It's really been a very prominent song, but I think people don't realize that it came from a musical. Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus, who also wrote Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, followed that up with a show called The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd, and that the song is from there. Uh, also, around that time, it was the uh, era of the bossa nova craze. It was started by Astrid Gilberto and uh, Stan Getz. Soon, everyone was recording those albums. Here is a great version of Feeling Good by Chris Connor. The album is called Chris Connor Sings the Gentle Bossa Nova. Here is Feeling Good. Bird flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. in the sea You know how I feel River running free You know how I feel Blossom on the tree You know how I feel It's a new dawn It's a new day new life for me. Flies all having fun. You know what I mean. Sleep in peace when day is done. That's what I mean. It's an old world, it's a new world, and a bold world for me. When you shine You know how I feel Scent of the pine You know how I feel Freedom is mine 
dawn It's a new day It's a new life For me Thanks, guys, for listening. That was Chris Connor singing Feeling Good from Chris Connor Sings the Gentle Bossa Nova, a 1965 record, which is no longer available. But if you do search online, there is a way to download it. I'm Dan Fortune. Thanks for being with us, bringing you a, a semi-regular segment on Broadway Bullet called Lush and Lively. I do a monthly DJ night at Time Out in New York Lounge at New World Stages featuring all sorts of interesting interpretations of show songs and pop songs. More information is at lushandlively.net, and if you, can, if you want to email me, it's dan at lushandlively.net. Thanks so much, and be lush and lively. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up Volume 325. I hope you have or had a happy Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, Next episode is going to be our season finale, second Thursday in December. Uh, We'll be back at the end of January. And uh, we're going to hopefully have a lot of good stuff from you. I think we're going to have maybe somebody on from the new Broadway hit in Memphis. We're also going to sneak preview one of the songs from the uh, CD that I've been working on for uh, so long here, the BMI No More Revival. Bible CD, which is due at the end of February, but we're going to sneak preview one of those songs for you next episode, and uh, hopefully a lot of other little goodies for you. In the meantime, thanks for hopping on board. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and you've been listening to Broadway Bullet. All aboard. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet. It's a growing moment. We're starved, so shouldn't audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So, Jake Kapsi says my name, and I'm in the can. Actually, the Barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, to propose. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like. And I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere. But most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business. And you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. 
If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.